0: Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Endgame. Joining me, hopefully as always, because without him it really wouldn't be much good, is uh, my friend and partner in crime here, Mr. Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, come in. I'm here, and I can't wait to get rolling
1: uh, and talk to a old-time friend of both of ours. And I, hopefully, people will really enjoy his historical perspectives.
0: Yes, joining us uh, for this episode is the great Mark Farber, the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. Um, and uh, bill and i have both known mark for a number of years and are both avid readers of his work and you know I, I don't know about you bill but over the years i mean i've found so much uh, fantastic information insight and and kind of thought provoking material in mark's uh, writing it's it's been extraordinary
1: i couldn't agree more i i've been reading his uh, writings for i think close to Jeez, could it be that long?
0: Don't say it out loud. It's, no. okay, it's going to make you feel terribly okay. old. Okay. Trust me. I, I went okay. through this exercise earlier on. I'll, st- I'll stop right there. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Mark um, uh, famously or infamously fell foul of a political correctness police uh, a few years ago, which was a great shame. You know him, as I do, uh, none of the things that he was painted as at that time were accurate, although it was an extraordinary hit job. Um, and you know, sadly, it's led to Mark being much less visible in in, uh, in the financial media in recent years, which is a great shame, uh,
1: Bill. Well, we're going to make him a little more visible right now.
0: Yes, we are. So, uh, please welcome to the endgame, Doctor Mark Faber.
2: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure, especially it's a and a great honor to be on a program with my dear friend Bill Fleckenstein because he is also distinguished as someone who is no longer welcomed by the international media. <laughs> so yes. uh, you have here two people who share uh, some benefits of no longer being in the
0: international media. Well, listen, frankly, I'd Political rather be... Political
1: incorrectness has its
0: yeah, price. Exactly. Right? I'd rather be associated with you two than the international media. So hopefully I'll be guilty by association by the end of this. Okay. <laughs> so Mark, uh you know Bill and I have been on this kind of quest to figure out um we called it the end game for 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 one of a catchy title but really it's it's the transition from from the monetary policy and the situation around us to whatever comes next. And I think a big part of that that we haven't had a chance to talk to anyone about yet is is Asia. And so what we'd love to do is is kind of get a snapshot from you of how it feels in Asia, whether you can feel anything different, whether the Hong Kong-China tensions are um, are, are more serious than we're perhaps seeing them portrayed here in the Western media. How does it feel on the ground in Asia at the moment?
2: Well, uh, obviously, like elsewhere in the world, we're all in recession. There's no question about this. And I think that uh, ordinary people uh, suffer actually quite badly and especially in countries like the Asian countries where we don't have governments that hand out as much money as in Western Europe and in the U.S. So I think that business is bad. And in countries uh, such as Hong Kong and also Thailand and Singapore that rely heavily on uh, tourism and on conventions, this is a big business in Asia, the convention business, Business is especially hard hit because tourism is down uh, over 80%. So you can imagine what the impact is through the multiplier effect on hotels, on restaurants, on bars, and on uh, retail shops that some luxury brands, they have essentially 50% of the sales in Hong Kong. So this has had a huge impact economically. But you have to see Asia is still a young society and is not yet as spoiled as uh, young people in the Western world. They don't feel victimized (laughs) for everything that happens in the world. They don't think that they're victims. They just think that the reactions of governments to the crisis, to the COVID-19 crisis, was exaggerated and made things worse, than had governments done nothing at all? The COVID would have spread maybe more, but since for young people the mortality rate is next to zero, it wouldn't have had such a huge impact. So I think uh, that, yes, the economies are bad. But in the case of China, with actually less stimulus than in the US, the economy is doing okay. I wouldn't call it doing fantastically well, because one of the problems of China is that they also have a very large debt level. But we also have to analyze what debts were used for. Yes, some debts were used for speculation, but the high leverage in China is similar to the high leverage Japan had in the 60s and Korea in the 70s. It's been used for infrastructure. I mean, all the critics of China, and I distinguish between critics and China bashers. The China bashers, and you know some of them, They are mostly ignorant. They have no clue of what is happening in China. They have no clue what the Communist Party looks like, how actually uh, the leadership in the party is uh, voted for. But anyway, the critics, uh, they rightly say that uh, a lot of debts have accumulated over the last 20 years, but they acknowledge that... The infrastructure built out in China is the most impressive in the shortest period of time that has ever happened in the history of mankind. And this is not all stolen technology. Some of it is stolen, like every society, every civilization that came up inherited some of the knowledge of a previous civilization. This is a normal tradition but I acknowledge that they have also stolen the way that the Americans stole all the technology from Mm -hmm. Britain in the 19th century. (laughs) You know, we have to see this very clearly. Uh, The natives in America had no technology whatsoever. They didn't even know the wheel. And uh, the Europeans that came over, they brought some technology but later, during the period of the industrialization, which caught on first in Britain between around 1750 and 1840, during that period of time, Americans were way behind. So they had spies that, uh, that got uh, British to come to America to transfer the technology. And some actually went to Britain to spy on the British factory system. <laughs>
1: Yes, you. You in the last issue of the uh, Gloom, Boom, and Doom report, you uh, had uh, uh, a lot of um, ink you used on describing how all that process took place. So um, I think that I think a lot of people probably aren't really familiar with the fact that uh, all through uh, business development throughout history, everyone was always trying to steal the other guy's secrets.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. We in Switzerland. We also didn't, we were an agrarian society and the machinery then eventually came from Britain to Switzerland in the textile industry and in the power industry and so forth. So we had an Englishman, Brown, he came, he founded Brown Boveri, it's now essentially ABB and Sulzer the same and so forth. So I'm not saying, I'm not picking on America in this respect. I'm just saying this is a normal process in uh, the development of mankind. Now, the question that we have today is obviously this money printing, where will it lead to and uh, what is the eventual outcome? My view is that money printing, the way it's being done now, is very negative for economic growth in the long run. In the short run, you know, if you send a check of $1,000 to each person in the U.S., then they can maintain consumption. But it doesn't lead necessarily to capital investments because (laughs) the, the consumption is in the U.S. And what Trump was fighting about, namely the trade deficit, is actually going up. This is the most unusual case in the American economy. In previous recessions, the trade deficit always went right. down. Yes. In this recession, it went up. So it shows how essentially futile uh, the policies are. And uh, the end game, whatever the outcome is, a right-wing or left-wing government, in my view, will be lower standards of living for everybody. That, I think, is uh, the most likely outcome.
0: Mark, let, let me just go back to um, <clears throat> something you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, and that is this this idea uh, and the, and the kind of impression that we in the West have of China, which um, you know to your point is is perhaps a little bit further from reality than 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 you see on the ground there. Can you help people understand uh, perhaps a different and, and a more accurate way to think of it? Because we, we are pretty much swamped by one narrative over on this side of the world. How how should people be thinking about China? And what what are the main differences between the media narrative here in the West and the reality over there in Asia?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I mean, both India and China, and to some extent Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, are huge countries. They are huge markets in terms of number of people. Number two... Uh, Westerners until recently they thought we have the brands and uh, the stu- stupid Asians, they are in factories putting together the brands and uh, they will not develop their own brands. Now among the five largest beer brands in the world among the ten largest you have five Chinese
0: right.
2: number one and number two Largest beer brands in the world are Chinese. The largest liquor is also a Mao Tse. It's a horrible drink. I recommend it to you if you really want to die. It's a suicide medicine. It's the biggest brand of, I mean, of brandies in the world, of hard drinks. And so they have developed their own brands. Also in Thailand, we have local brands that are very big. We have local entertainment industries that are bigger than, you know, foreign stars when they come to Asia. This is a a totally different world. And what, well, some Westerners have noticed it because, you know, it's difficult not to notice how much spending power Asians have when they go shopping in New York Mm -hmm. or London or Zurich and in what kind of hotels they stay, and so forth. So with all the disadvantages and all the things that Asia has done wrong and all the human rights abuses, the one thing I can say, whereas when I grew up in the 50s and 60s and today in Europe, I don't think that uh, the majority of people is any better off than we were when we grew up. Probably they're worse off because it's more difficult to get a job. Mm -hmm. Mm And I can say with all and without any bias that in Asia, the majority of people is much better off than they were 30, 40 years ago. There's no comparison. When Deng Xiaoping came to power, or even in Russia when Putin came to power, and in Eastern Europe, people were dirt poor without any freedom of movement, without any freedom to develop initiatives, and so forth. And as they endorsed the market economy and the capitalistic system, with all its disadvantages, the majority has become much more affluent. It's unfortunate, but this is... one of the most good parts of the capitalistic system that it creates inequalities because it favors the capable one. Mm-hmm. And so the capable people run away faster than the uncapable people. Right. And But everybody in Asia, look, until 85, the Chinese couldn't travel outside the country. And gradually it was opened up, but with restrictions now. There are 140 million Chinese that travel outside China every year. This is a sign of an improved standard of living, and in China you have lots of people—not everybody, but lots of people—they form some kind of a middle class. I see them; they come to Shanghái. It's a favorite destination because Shanghái was in a movie in China that became the best-selling or best-watched movie. So. They, they come here, and I see they, they. You don't get the impression that they actually have a lot of debts. These how the people that walk around, they pay for cash, they live modestly, they don't spend much on hotels, they go shopping, and compared to Westerners, they don't get drunk all the time and don't start brawls in restaurants <laughs> and bars. <laughs> so there's actually less fighting.
0: So Mark uh, just just drilling down to be a bit more specific I I, I want to just talk about Hong Kong um which is obviously somewhere you know very well and there seems to be an end game of sorts playing out in Hong Kong n- not just with the protests um uh, and the you know the, the 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 anger at the at the legislature but also in terms of uh, the reaction by the US and and the kind of withdrawal of the of the special arrangement they have with Hong Kong as you look at that, what, what do you think is happening in Hong Kong? Is it going to become uh, very much a Chinese city? Are we at the end of one party, two systems? What's actually playing out there right now?
2: Uh, I'll answer the question in a minute. But I'd just like to uh, bring up first that whatever the U.S. can do to embarrass China, they will do. And obviously they interfered in the demonstration riots in Hong Kong. Uh, on the side of demonstrators last year. Very clearly, we have proof of it. It's not something that is a conspiracy theory. It's documented black and white. Number two, uh, Hong Kong was nothing before the demise of uh, the nationalist government in China in 1949. It then became an important city, as a transit point between China and the rest of the world. And now that China opens up and Hong Kong, by law, it was transferred, the sovereignty from Britain to China, uh, by law, is now part of China. And uh, the way other cities in the past that became part of an empire, like Venice became part of Italy and uh, Tangier became part of uh, Algeria and so forth. So, uh, Sorry, of Tunis. Uh, Once this, and Goa, part of India, once these cities become part of an empire, uh, they lose their sovereignty and some things... uh, turn down and other opportunities open up. That we have to see very clearly. Now the people who are reactionary, they don't want to adapt to the changes. The people that understand that nothing stays the same and that changes is a constant in economic life and in history, they adapt. In the case of Hong Kong, there is a group of people, the young ones, They misread the situation to start with. They thought, well, the dumb Chinese are uneducated. They need us, the most brilliant people in the whole world. We Hong Kong Chinese. You know, that was kind of the feeling. And China needs us, is dependent on us because we have a deep port, uh, deep sea port and China doesn't, and we will have the only one along the whole Chinese coast. They were naive. They just believed that the uh, eminent position that China had for a while between 1949 and 1997 would continue forever. But as China opened up, they have now more flights into Shanghai direct than into Hong Kong, And Hong Kong was kind of sidelined. The trade route changed. More and more trade occurred between China and the Western world, and more and more business occurred, no longer going through Hong Kong. And in China, if you want to do well, you need to speak Mandarin. Mandarin is the language of China. The Hong Kong Chinese had a vote on that. The teachers didn't want to teach their pupils Mandarin. They chose a few years ago to teach them Cantonese. And and the young people, they also wanted to be taught in Cantonese, not Mandarin. So all these things worked actually against the young Hong Kong Chinese. And, uh, you know, this is also a case in the Western world. Everybody wants to be famous, and nobody wants to wear overalls and actually do work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the reality. And uh, so the young Hong Kong Chinese, they have difficulties in finding jobs that are paying well. In the meantime, and that I have to say, the damage central banks have caused to the world is huge. In the sense that this asset inflation we had for real estate, for stocks, for bonds, and so forth, makes life for young people to accumulate wealth Mm -hmm. very difficult because they buy assets which they can't afford. They have to borrow a lot of money. If they have some savings, they don't get any interest on their savings. And because stocks are high, the returns going forward on stocks will not be that great and if they buy bonds they can buy a 10 years a swiss franc bond uh, they will pay 110 to receive in a, a 10 years 100 right. <laughs> so they lose 10% great that is the problem but this is man made by central banks and everybody applauds the central banks because of course the fund managers they want central banks to print money because their fees go up. They don't want an honest central bank. They want a dishonest central bank. The same, they want dishonest politicians because everybody's dishonest, so they can also stay dishonest as fund managers. This is the reality. You really hit my hot button when you
1: talked about how the central banks have screwed up the the world because of their policies. A lot of people can't really see that and, and, uh, and trace the thread back one of the things that I try to think about just as a mental exercise is how does the money printing end? what causes it to end? Because we know it will end. Um, and so sometimes I, I I like to think about, will will the bond market stop the central banks? And, and then I think about what's going on in Japan where the, where the BOJ owns 45% or so of the JGBs and (laughs) JGBs don't even (laughs) trade now. Um, have you, have you thought about what if, what if the BOJ goes to the moth and says, we, we're just going to swap all the, the 10 years we own, all the bonds we own, and we'll swap it for a 100-year piece of paper that pays one basis point. Basically, they're tearing up the debt, but they're pretending they have an asset. If they did that, what would, what would be the outcome in the financial markets? Would they yawn? Would rates rise? would they go down i mean then all of a sudden for in effect japan would have cut its its um its debt in half the government debt in half and yes. i figured they're so much farther along in this experiment perhaps that's the place to look <laughs> yeah. for the lab rat to see what happens
2: next how we, how would you see that playing out if that were to occur yes uh, this is a possibility and maybe the markets will yawn because the markets have thought about this before. But one thing I want to say about Japan, when you talk to me about Japan, if I look at Japan, 1989, that was the peak of the stock market, at close to 39,000 on the Nikkei. And today, uh, by 89, Japan, in terms of wealth and standard of living, was way ahead of anything else in Asia. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, we're 30 years later, Japan has largely stagnated. There's no growth in Japan. And uh, I just read an article about how many people in Japan can't afford to have a house. They live with their parents and so forth that is elsewhere in the world the same. But compared to the economic growth we had in Taiwan, South Korea, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, everywhere, uh, Japan has fallen back, relatively speaking. You understand, it's not a disaster because they started out from a high level. But if, and we have to define here, uh, what is our objective? Do we want progress or stagnation? Do we want uh, equality, like the socialists prob- uh, promised? There was never any equality under the socialists, but there was uh, equality in miseries. <laughs> that yeah. I can say. Right. Yeah, you know. right. That's what I said from the start. I can't see how the outcome will be very favorable if you print money. When it will happen uh, will depend on a a number of factors. In the case of Japan, because they have a relatively low consumption, uh, they don't have a huge trade deficit. So the currency still has been relatively firm, surprisingly. But I suppose that in the case of the US, if the debt level keeps on going up, and don't forget, the Japanese bonds are largely owned by Japanese institutions and individuals. In the case of the US, you may have the figure, but I think about close to 50% of the government debt is owned by foreigners. So, and the Japanese yen is not. Uh, is not the world currency. It is an important currency, but it's not the foreign uh, the foreign exchange currency of the world. The U.S. is the global currency, the reserve currency. If foreigners lose trust in the U.S. dollar and in uh, the ability of the treasury or the willingness to pay, the the willingness is what counts, then uh, I suppose that the dollar will become extremely vulnerable. This is my base scenario, that the problems will occur when the dollar tumbles. And this tumble may occur first very slowly, you know, that the dollar just drifts a little bit because the other currencies are not much better. Say, if you look this year, the euro is up 4% against the U.S. dollar, but, say, the Russian ruble is down 20%, the Turkish lira is in 23%, the Brazilian real down 28% and so forth. So the dollar, relative to other currencies, has still done well. Mm -hmm. It hasn't done well against gold and silver. Gold is up, I don't know, as of today 25%, and silver about 32%. It fluctuates every day. But I think this will be reflected at some point in assets uh, such as precious metals and real estate. Remarkably, in this recession, real estate. Uh, is actually going up, not in the city centers. Right. So if you li- right. live on the outskirts, let's say where you live, in the where the rich people live, <laughs> real estate is going up. <laughs> so, so but, but you know, this is a very distorted economy. You have technology going up. You have Zoom uh, up, you know, almost ten times this year and the typical stock is down. So money printing distorts everything. It's like when I grew up in my parents' home, in my grandparents' home, people said, you have to save money, and every month you put some in the bank in savings accounts. That was considered safe. Nowadays, cash is not safe because it loses its purchasing power. And massively so. The CPI is doctored. All economic statistics in the U.S. are doctored. That the Chinese stole from the Americans. How to doctor (laughs) economic statistics. That we can all agree. So we
1: we exported financial chicanery to them.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: So, Mark, talking about the dollar there, uh, obviously there's nowhere in the world really that that feels uh, any kind of period of strength in the dollar more acutely than than asia and we and we are once again it seems since for the last few weeks particularly back in a period where um people want to own the dollar again H- how is that translating in the real world over in Asia? we look at all these charts and it just it's just lines on a chart but but does it make a difference to the conversation in asia when the dollar strengthens
2: well uh, uh, traditionally dollar strength is a symptom of liquidity tightening And dollar strength, in my view, would not be very positive for asset markets, including U.S. stocks. But it would be obviously negative for companies and countries that borrowed heavily in U.S. dollars. They get killed if the dollar is really strengthening substantially. But I have to say, I mean, uh, the Asian currencies... Uh, with a few exceptions, have done reasonably well. They are not down significantly. Stocks have done worse. But surprisingly, uh, Chinese stocks are up by and large. And actually, the Chinese currency and the Hong Kong dollar, which have been Mm -hmm. the principal targets of the bashers, they are also up slightly against the U.S. dollar. The Bashers should have concentrated on Turkey, Russia, and in Brazil. Brazil yeah. You know, not, but not on China.
0: But how how is, um? because as we record this, we're just going into Golden Week over in Asia, which obviously historically has been a huge period of, of travel and a huge period of uh, consumer spending. H- how has it looked this year with the virus? Because the initial reports that I've seen suggest Everybody's still traveling and and it's crazy to try and go anywhere. Is that the case? Has the virus um, kind of crimped people's desire to get out and about or not?
2: Uh, There is some domestic traveling, but uh, much less international. Because if you have to say, if you want to come to Thailand, you're welcome. But first you have to stay for 14 days in quarantine which is like a prison. You can't even get a drink right. unless you have a friend who smuggles it in or unless someone connects the water tab to a beer a barrel <laughs> in the lobby. You know, it's a possibility. But, I mean, the, 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 you understand, the quarantine rules are so harsh that nobody wants to undergo them. And so they will not have tourism coming back for some time. Now other countries are better, but I think in Hong Kong they still have quarantine as well. Yeah, and in and maybe you can go to Singapore. But if I go to Singapore, then I can't come back to Thailand unless I go for fourteen days into quarantine. And for me, fourteen days without alcohol is quite difficult. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh Mark, a friend <laughs> Actually, of mine. To be honest,
1: even a day. Yeah, right. (laughs) A dinner without wine. uh, Yes. um, A friend of mine who lives in Japan has been there for quite a while uh, suggested to me recently, he thought that the deflation mentality that's held sway so long in Japan was beginning to change. Um, And he has his reasons for that uh, and uh, talked about Buffett buying these trading companies. Have you seen anything that suggests to you that might actually
2: be the case? Because if that was, it might be a rather important data point. Yes, but I think we have to define uh, very carefully w- what is inflation. I, I think, you know, what people call inflation, namely that the price of bread goes up and so forth. This is a symptom of inflation. And in the last 20, 30 years, we had asset inflation but in Japan we had asset deflation. So when he talks about the inflation, he may be referring that in Japan uh, the stock market has bottomed out and actually by sh- some measures the stock market is at a new high if you take out the financial statement. Yeah. And so yes, uh, there may be uh, some, uh, some improvement. And I think uh, this relates to the question you had about the bond market and about the currency. My sense is that if I look at the resources, you know, outside the precious metals complex, which is essentially gold, silver, platinum, but outside, and uh, I look at uh, some recent moves in soybeans, wheat, and until recently we had a huge move in uh, the lumber we were up almost four times within Mm -hmm. like three or four months. Now we come back. But these are kind of sparks that indicate to me that when uh, the resource inflation will come, it will also happen in food, and then it will be felt uh, more widely. And that this may then kill the bond market. I mean, bond yields as they are, they are at the lowest level in the history of mankind. If you look at an index mm-hmm. of various mm-hmm. government bonds. And they are artificially low because of central bank buying. And we can assume that this will not, not last forever. I may last for some time, like in the 30s, interest rates were very low. And as you know, in the 40s, they bottomed out and started to go up, but very gently in the 50s. And then they accelerated on the upside in the late 60s and 70s. But initially, they went up very little. But we have to understand that with the debt level we have today, even a slight increase in rates in Japan will essentially be very problematic because it will eat up all the tax revenues. So if your friend is right, uh, maybe Japan will face uh, some problems in the bond market. You know, the, the, the central mm-hmm. bank will have to accelerate the buying of bonds, and maybe that will lead to some uh, weakness in the yen. At some point, who knows? Exactly how it will end, Nobody knows for sure, because it's also a political issue. Uh, You look at the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S. Basically, there's no difference in how much they spend. Right, (laughs) right. You know, Trump is not a Republican per se. No. He he is basically a big talker. And he will do anything that suits his uh, near-term agenda. But to be fiscally frugal is not one of his objectives, nor is it to essentially have a central bank that is honest. He's a money printer. Mm -hmm. Although he came in criticizing the Fed, now all he's done is essentially encourage the Fed to lower interest rates and to print money. So, uh, I feel that uh, out of this non government or the Washington establishment or the political parties or the bureaucracy, you'll have eventually a move, a revolutionary move to the left or to the right. We don't know yet for sure uh, because it could be a minority that is very powerful and fanatics that take over the government, even if it's for a short period of time. In the Spanish Civil War, first the communists essentially took over the government, but then uh, the right-wing Franco, uh, the the Republicans won. So we don't know for sure where we're headed to, or in Russia, the Bolshevik Revolution, it was first communist, but after Stalin, he was like Trump. He didn't care about anything. It was all about his power. It wasn't about any ideology at all. So we don't know. And in that environment, the best we can actually do is uh, accepting the fact that we don't know where mm-hmm. we will head. it. Mm-hmm. But we can assume safely it's not going to be good. So that is Uh, let's say, a conclusion. We have to prepare for difficult times, both economically and uh, in asset markets that may become very volatile. In other words, you don't want to be caught heavily on margin on February 23, uh, 2000, and then the market drops more than 30% within a month, and you're heavily on margin. Uh, you're cold, and then you have to sell holdings at an an inopportune time, in other words, with a huge loss. So I think some prudence is uh, required, and I would suggest some diversification, and I would also suggest that the U.S. dollar status as a reserve currency is now on very limited time. I think it will disappear, the reserve currency status, and the U.S. will not have the money to pay the policeman and the politically correct <laughs> the teacher of the world anymore.
1: It's well, far um, too expensive. Let, let me just interrupt for one sec. I, I certainly understand your train of thought there, but if For the U.S. to lose the reserve currency status, something would have to take its place or a couple of some things. What what would that be? It's hard for me to see some other currency. I mean, as you pointed out earlier, they're all bad. It's a question of which one's worse. Right. And who's which one's
2: owned by more foreigners. So what could take its place? Well, I think a gold backed currency could do the trick, but the gold. Uh, would have to be revalued to a hundred thousand dollars or so. I'm not. This is not a pr- uh, prediction of mine. But I think that if I look at currencies, uh, w- we had essentially paper and coin currencies for thousands of years. Uh, maybe there will be a new currency like bitcoins. Uh, you understand? Mm-hmm. I think that is the likely, like you have a credit card. Well, a credit card is not a currency as a store of value, but it has the function of money in the sense that you can go into any shop and pay your bill with the credit card as long, and I have stressed this, as long as the internet functions. Right. The internet goes out at the hotel counter or in a shop, and you come with your credit card, you can say, look, I'm an honest guy. They will not believe you. (laughs) They will not believe us, to be fair. (laughs) So uh, that, I think, is a very important factor in the ownership of something like gold. If I go with gold somewhere, and I enjoy watching old Western movies, When they go to the bar, you know, yeah. then the barmen never trust the customers that they will pay. They ask them to pay air of that. And some have like a gold piece and so they bite the gold, to check whether it's real. And I think that uh, there will be a function for gold and silver in a new kind of arrangement, because I think the, the mess will be so pronounced that nobody will trust anything anymore. Ah, uh. I hadn't quite thought of it that I way mean, before. I, I, I believe that uh, the present system, and I'm not uh, saying Republican or Democrats, but I think we have a capitalistic system, a market economy that started out with the best intentions and achieved huge economic gains for the whole world. The poverty level today it's the lowest it's ever been. There are fewer people starving than there have ever been before, and so forth, we are an economy of plenty, but we have also been badly corrupted, and some people obviously don't like it, which for which I have some understanding. I'm less in favour of the radical solutions they propose, but I can understand that something that somebody would say, look, something is wrong if such and such gets subsidies and takes out huge bonuses on the taxpayers' Mm -hmm. expenses and so forth. And everybody knows how much corruption there is in Washington. It's not Republican or Democrat. Both are equally uh, corrupt. And so the voices of opposition to this kind of system not only in the US, in Europe, ditto the same mm-hmm. and so forth. Eventually, the system will be reset. It's not going to be pleasant. You, I don't know how, how old you are, I don't have to worry so much about the reset. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I worry more about the quarantine for 14 days without any alcohol. <laughs> but the reset is not going to be pleasant, for sure not. No. But people have to accept many societies uh, went down for a while before the world was growing again. I suppose if you're a Native American, after the arrival of the white man, and especially after the 19th century, and uh, where you were sent to a reserve, your standard of living went down a little bit. I suppose. I'm not sure. Maybe not. I wasn't there, but I suppose that many societies yeah. they have declining standards of living.
0: Mark, you mentioned you mentioned Bitcoin there, and I'm, and I'm always interested in people's views on Bitcoin, particularly you know people of, of our generation uh, tend in general to to poo poo it unless they understand the value of some kind of sound money, and it sounded like you were lumping Bitcoin in with the kind of potentially sound money uh, bracket. So what are your thoughts on Bitcoin?
2: Well, I mean, uh, sound in the sense that the amount of outstanding Bitcoins is limited. But unsound in the sense that it can be split. You you can split it forever. So this is... uh, I believe, but... I'm a different generation than uh, some of your listeners. I believe a sound currency is physical gold and silver. Physical. Yeah. Now, the question is, of course, where do you store it? Because you can't trust. If people, if governments, you know, the bureaucrats, I call them the bureaucrats, Mm. these really vicious people, they have no interest in protecting your rights and your prosperity and uh, and anything that concerns you. Their only ambition is to protect their jobs and their own salaries and their power. They are power hungry. They are, you know, just horrible sociopaths. Anyway, if these people could tell you and me and everybody, you're no longer allowed to go out, you're locked in, you, can't, you have to close your um, hairdresser shop, you have to you close your coffee shop, you have to close your whatever shop or business. If these people can do that, they can do anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: they can point. take everything away from you. Has happened before in history, many times, not the first time. And I think that uh, the, the bureaucrats, before the whole system collapses, they will go and say, oh, people who own gold are the evil people. Because I see it already with central banks. Yeah. They now start to blame other people for their shortcomings. And the best with central bankers, about three months ago, one or two of the central bankers said, Well, the central banks have now to start to take care of inequality. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Inequality and climate change. Shortly thereafter, the stocks of the people that are the wealthiest people in the world, from Jeff Bezos to Microsoft, Bill Gates, and so forth, they all went up, but the ordinary people don't own any shares. So the, the whole system is essentially rigged and we have also more and more reports of rigged operation in banks yeah. and in brokerage firms and so forth is manipulated everywhere. The central banks are the chief manipulators of the system. But if you say that on CNBC, you're likely to be killed on the way out. <laughs> um, on this confiscation idea,
1: um, I have a slightly different viewpoint. See what you think. Uh, uh, Having been bullish on gold and silver for some time, I'm always asked the question, well, why won't they confiscate it like they did in the 30s? And my response has always been, look, in the 30s, the universal view was gold was money. I mean, that was money. And uh, the the currencies that that were strong and trusted were convertible, more or less. And... Today, the, I don't think the government, at least in the Western world, the governments don't have that same view of gold. What, what what they treasure basically are their central banks who are money printers. So while I could I could conceive of a wealth tax, you know, to just, we're just going to take your money or your your so-called net worth. I can't see them really singling out gold because none of these governments believe in it in the first place. So why would they take away <laughs> something they don't believe in? So yes. that I've yes. never been able. So I've never really gotten behind that idea. How, do, how does
2: how does that sound to you? Yes, I think it sounds very reasonable to me that uh, the academically uneducated people who, who populate central banks that they wouldn't regard gold as uh, a currency. That I agree with you, but they may in future. That's why I'm basically saying, for us, people that hold gold and who are positive about gold and silver, not, you know, unrealistic positively, for us, the best is that gold and silver move up, but not too much. You know, the danger zone will be if gold goes to, say, 50, 100,000, a million dollars an ounce, something like this, then... Uh, yeah, we're reaching the ten- danger zone. But whether the gold price is here at nineteen hundred, seventeen hundred, or two thousand five hundred, that will not bother the central yeah. banks. What may bother the central banks somewhat is uh, if food prices go up a lot. You know, and I think okay for an individual who doesn't have a lot of money, it's a, a bit difficult to buy farms and so forth. But I recently looked at uh, a table that uh, showed the largest landowners in the world. So as as number one, you have the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That can be expected, that they inherited a little bit uh, here (laughs) and there. No pressure applied. (laughs) Anyway. And then... You have a lot of wealthy people, you know, like Ted Turner. They've yeah. turned a lot of their assets into land. But, and he's not just one. No, John Malone did them. the same thing too. Yes, a lot of people in America, in Canada, especially in Australia where essentially a lot of wealth is in large farms. Their families, uh, that their farms that have been in families for three, 400 years, and so forth. So uh, I think that the ownership of land is okay. But if you own too much land, the socialists will come one day. The way if you own a house that is very big in the Hamptons, the socialists will come one day and say, look, Mr. Fleckenstein, it's unfair. You live in a, such a big house alone, with uh, your wife or with your girlfriend or servant, to make things fair, you have to take in three or four families. And uh, we also advise you, in order to avoid any social problems in future, that you respect uh, some racial diversity. So they will assign you from each continent some people. And you will then spend the time keeping the peace among all these people. You should have a house, but not too ostentatious. You know, you Mm -hmm. should have a property in the countryside, but not live a life that is totally different from the villagers. Not to kind of raise kind of animosity. I think in future if I look at various revolutions that have occurred, they always went with the pitchfork against the rich.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's clear. And I think when you, when you run out of the ability to just create quote unquote money out of thin air, then the only way after that is to go and take real assets from people that have them. Uh, and that's the only way this thing ultimately you can, you can kind of fill the goal, fill the gaps.
2: Yes. But in the meantime, you know, we have to be happy that we were born in a generation that had incredible freedom. We had the absence, you know, when I think of your grandfathers and great grandfathers, uh, some went to, through the American Civil War, was horrible. Some went through World War I, horrible. Some went through the Depression, horrible. Some went through World War II, horrible. Some were sent to Vietnam, horrible. So in overall, we had a good, essentially we were a lucky generation. Mm-hmm. And I think the young, they could have a lucky generation. But the problem is they studied the wrong things.
0: Yeah. And Mark, let me let me ask you going going back to um, something you touched on a little earlier, which is the, this shift from deflation to inflation. What, how should people be thinking from a portfolio standpoint about that? Because right now, nobody has a portfolio that is constructed with inflation as as the main threat it faces, and so readjusting a portfolio from forty years of deflation to potential inflation is a very difficult thing to do. How how do you think about it?
2: Yes, but you're talking about inflation in consumer prices, uh, which we had disinflation, I agree. But we had inflation in asset prices. I mean, whatever you bought 30 years ago is higher today than it was at the time. Whether it's a house or a Picasso painting or uh, a baseball card and so forth, everything is higher And I think when inflation comes, I think the one thing that will be bad is actually financial assets. Bonds will be hurt, and I think there will be a limit to how far central banks can buy the bonds. Now, I concede the deflation in financial assets could occur through the currency market. You know, in Germany, in the hyperinflation, stocks went up in local currency, but the currency collapsed. Mm-hmm. So I repeat, in my view, the time bomb for the U.S. is the U.S. dollar. This is a time bomb. And uh, people say, well, it's been holding up so far. Yes, the, the, the Titanic was also floating until it sunk. <laughs> you, you understand that. Just that because something hasn't gone down, uh, it may happen later. And when it happens, usually these currency moves are then very violent. Like in the 70s, the U.S. dollar really collapsed against uh, European currencies. I remember when I grew up, one U.S. dollar bought 4.20 Swiss francs. At one stage, even five Swiss francs. After the 70s, it was close to one to one. So the currency has lost a lot of money. I mean, I told Drexel Burnham, at that time I was working for Drexel and they always told me how great their performance was. So I told them, look, my grandmother has a better performance than you. She put all her money in Swiss franc deposits and it's up uh, against the US dollar. From four to one,
1: the Swiss franc would probably be higher even still, were it not for the fact that they were trying to lash it to the euro and uh, and uh, you know taking the money that they print and buying U.S. stocks, right?
2: Crazy, yes. But that is the issue. Everything is manipulated very badly, and uh, the system is uh, completely corrupt. Because everybody has done something wrong. So whether it's a Republican or Democrat or in other countries, everybody knows something about somebody else. So the public is never informed. And the worst part is that people that actually tried to bring the truth to the open like Assange or Snowden, they are demonized. They are... They are being put in court as criminals when they are the ones that tried to tell the truth. Um,
1: You know, one thought I had shifting gears a bit back to. um, CPI inflation, not asset inflation, because, you know, you've touched on that point, which has long been a hobby horse of mine is that central banks create asset inflation, they think that's fine. And they think CPI, they used to think CPI inflation was bad, but now I guess we want some, as long as it's 2%, the magic 2% number they made up. But if we, if we, uh, if it is the case that inflation starts to pick up and psychology starts to change, the first thing the Fed will do will be to rationalize it because they say, gee, finally we're getting the inflation that we need And we can make up for past periods of being too low. I'm not going to comment on what a dumb idea that is. That's what they think. Um, But then inflation will probably, once it gets going, will continue to pick up because the psychology will change as well. It occurs to me that their first move would be to try to implement yield curve control. So we could get to a period where there's some combination of the Fed trying to stop in inflation from going up, sorry, trying try to contain the manifestation of a change in inflation psychology by printing even more money, thereby making it worse. And perhaps that would tie into a scenario in which the dollar really had trouble. So it seems to me that maybe the linchpin in a lot of these precarious financial arrangements is really if inflation starts to change, the financial world as we've known it for the last 30 years is going to be dramatically different. Does
2: that make sense? Yes, I mean, look, uh, uh, last summer, end of August 2019, as you know, the Fed started to expand again its balance sheet because there were some uh, tensions in the repo market. This is the problem of money printing. And I said this already in uh, 2008, when they embarked on QE1. I said, this is not QE1, this is QE infinity. Because once you embark on money printing, the next level will be that you have to print more and more and more. And now we are at the stage when the Fed will buy $120 billion of assets every month. You understand? That, was, that is much higher than QE1. Yes. And when inflation will pick up, there will be tightness in uh, liquidity tightening. So the Fed will scratch their heads and with their limited intellect, they will argue, oh, Money is tightening because we didn't print enough. We have to print more, exactly what you said. And at that stage, uh, the dollar vulnerability could become quite severe. But I want to once again make one point. If I were an American, I would hold some assets outside America and I would not only listen to the China bashers, but also try to understand that the Chinese economy will be the size of Europe and America combined. In many sectors, they are already the size of America and Europe combined. And whether you like the Chinese or not, and whether you're racist or not, I think that portfolios will eventually have to own some assets in China. Whether it's real estate or stocks or bonds, in all the global indices, China is way underweight, way underweight. So I think that, uh, and I have many friends, they invest in China and they find world-class companies. I mean, nobody can deny that NetEase or Alibaba or Tencent are not world-class companies. There are also industrial companies. There are also beverage companies that are world class. So I think that uh, when uh, Grant asked the question, how do you protect yourself? I think you need an international diversification. I think China is an option. It has some risks, but the U.S. also has some risks. Europe is committing political suicide. And uh, relatively rapidly, (laughs) it's hard to believe, but it's it's the case.
0: Mark, uh, let let me ask you uh, one more question. Um, We we spent a a fair bit of time talking about central banks, and and the one central bank that um, really kind of sails under the radar, even though what they're doing is perhaps the most outrageous uh, action of all, is the Swiss Central Bank. Obviously, printing the money out of thin air, and then using it to become an enormous hedge fund owning uh, US stocks. Why is it, do you think, that people take so little notice of what the Swiss National Bank is doing? And how do you see that particular escapade, let's call it, um, reaching uh, its its uh,
2: end? The Swiss franc is perceived as a strong currency. So foreigners, they buy Swiss francs. Under normal economic conditions the Swiss franc would appreciate, say, 30% against the U.S. dollar or more because the Swiss franc is a relatively small currency in the the context of the whole world. So there's upward pressure on Swiss francs. What the the National Bank does is the dollar comes in, they don't uh, exchange it into Swiss francs. That would put pressure on the Swiss franc. They go and buy Apple shares. Right. (laughs) And how this will end, that when oh. the foreigners will sell, uh, the Swiss will give them back US dollars, which they brought in at the then exchange uh, prevailing rate. I argue against this policy. But this is uh, where capitalism meets the bureaucrats, you see. Who runs Switzerland? Switzerland is run uh, by some socialists, but uh, the business is largely run by old Swiss families and some new groups. But basically, these are very wealthy people. And these groups have interest in Switzerland, in industries, and in the tourist industry, and so forth and so on. And they go to the central bank and say, you can't let the Swiss franc become too strong. Because if the Swiss franc is too strong, we lose money uh, because we're not competitive anymore. This is a lot of nonsense because if you have a watch that is manufactured in Switzerland, out of a watch like this, maybe 5% is made in Switzerland. The rest is, all comes from foreign countries, whether it's mm-hmm. Vietnam or China and so forth. So the labor cost in the, say, you right. buy a watch like this, production cost of a luxury watch, even a gold Rolex is maybe 1000 thousand one thousand two hundred $1,200. The sales price in the shop is 20000 What? How much labor is in that uh, watch? Nothing is insignificant compared to the distribution cost, what goes into the shops into the wholesaler end and end. Irrelevant. But the Swiss franc have, uh, the Swiss have this stick about not letting the Swiss franc get strong. I argue, yes, if the Swiss franc gets strong, then you have to take your work, uh, tell your workforce, we have to cut your wage to the level of Europe. Because in Germany, wages are much lower than in Swiss franc. Uh, Switzerland. They're also much lower. Uh, they also have much lower social security payments to them. So if you go into pension in Switzerland, it's the highest essentially among European countries from the government. If you go to the immigration in Thailand and you show them um, your income from Switzerland, your pension, they immediately know, oh, Swiss, they have a high tension. Because the Germans and the others, they have much low, lower social security, they like also Americans. Americans, in terms of social security, they get about half of what the Swiss get. Wow, I didn't know that. So have you,
1: there's a phenomenon that, that we've recently become, or I should say, I don't know when Grant found out about it, but there's a phenomenon that's, um, been at work here in America. Uh, the what the what what the passive investment community has um, actually done to the price of securities. Have you uh, seen much about this or read about this? It, it turns out that the market share of the passive investment world is about forty five percent now, plus or minus. And it seems that that has been one of the reasons why the U.S. market trades as as uniquely as it does, that and, that on top, and, and uh, QE and speculation.
2: Have you uh, seen much about this? And if you have, do you have any thoughts about it? Well, I mean, in Europe, we also have indexing and so forth. Uh, I think what has distinguished the U.S. market from other markets is it's, its high technology component. And to be fair... You know, I I listened recently to an interview with Greenblatt and he's one of the very successful fund managers in the U.S. He said, look, uh, maybe Amazon is expensive and maybe all these companies are very high, but at least they're growing. And Mm -hmm. so you're buying a business that is viable and they have a huge franchise, you know, duplicate nowadays an Amazon, a Microsoft, an Apple is not so easy. Mm -hmm. So for a while, they'll have this franchise and it's worth a lot of money. So I can understand that people buy these tech because the rest, if you look at the German market, the German market has value stocks, but it's at the same level than it was in 98 uh, because uh, like the Swiss market, It has a lot of financials. The financials have done very badly. And it has industrial companies that haven't done particularly well because some of them haven't been run particularly well. And it doesn't have a lot of technology companies. And the one technology company they had was a fraud. (laughs) 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 Wirecard. That is the best joke. is exactly. Uh, exactly. SEC so, and all these bodies that supervise the financial industry, they're all asleep at their desks. They're typical bureaucrats.
1: Yes. Well, the SEC, they, they essentially don't even function anymore, near as I can tell. Um, so basically what you're kind of saying is that American the American stock market on top of QE and the passive influence and the you and and Robin Hood and U- U.S. speculation. Perhaps the U.S. market has benefited from speculation by other people around the world because we've got the hot group of stocks now. So, like I know, for instance, that, that the structured products that are sold to Asia that are packaged equities and various different things to uh, replace fixed income—it's uh, quite a big number. Uh, last, I, what I what I think I understand is it might be as much as two mil- two trillion dollars. So again, a lot of the world's hot money has ended up in the States, uh, maybe because of these tech stocks and how well they've performed. So we've got an extra dollop of hot money on top of the
2: other things we talked about. Well, say if the ECB monetizes, what happens is they buy bonds and maybe some equities from an insurance company, a pension fund, an endowment fund. So that fund uh, gets cash and they tender the securities to the ECB. So with that cash, the insurance company, instead of buying uh, local bonds at negative interest rates, can go and buy treasuries in the U.S. And instead of buying a buyer in Germany, they can go and buy Microsoft in the U.S. So the portfolio manager, he has some leeway And yes, a lot of money has flown from around the world into the U.S. market because it always flows into the market that performs best. That was Mm -hmm. also in uh, 85 to 89 in Japan. Japan, Every fund manager around the world said, we can't afford not to own Japanese stocks. In the years 96 to 2000, people said we can't afford not to own Cisco. We have to own Cisco whether you, we like it or not. By the way, Cisco is down 50% from the yeah. uh, 2000 high even yeah. today, yeah. even after recovery. So uh, we have these distortions and money printing make, it, it, it exacerbates them. Anyway, I think I will have to leave you now soon.
0: Okay. Okay, that's, that's absolutely fine. Look, look, thank you so much for uh, for taking this time to sit and chat with us. It's um, it's been as we both knew it would be a, a, a fun and hugely enlightening conversation. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark.
2: Nice to see you. Take thank care. you, Grant. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Well, Bill, um, fascinating. I mean, that was that was um, an hour and change of of pure undistilled Mark Farber. Yeah. I mean, you, you,
1: pe- people forget. I, I've been reading the Gloom, Boom and Doom report, I think, since the 80s. And yeah. what, what you, what's easy to forget is what an encyclopedic memory he has and how much financial history and world history he knows and goes into his thought process. For anyone who's listening that hasn't or doesn't read the gloom, boom, and doom report, you're really missing an opportunity to, you know, gather information that you're not liable to get from anywhere else. And, and, you know, in the last group of years, knowing a lot about financial history in the world hasn't paid dividends. But prospectively, at some point, you, you're going to really need to know more about that. And it's, it's a really good way to, uh,
0: to learn more, I think. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And, and, you know, it's funny, Bill, one thing that's I think has been a theme throughout all these podcasts we've done in the Endgame series, um, is is that historical knowledge that each of our guests has had, whether it be Lacy, whether it be Russell, you know, whether it be Mark today, um, Ed Chancellor, obviously, everybody has Jim Grant. That, Of course, yeah. yeah, Jim Grant, of course, everybody has that knowledge of history, and and you know, it it clearly colours their worldview today, and and helps them understand likely outcomes and really that's all we're all trying to do here is we don't know what the outcome is we're trying to weigh up the various likely outcomes and um and try and prepare accordingly which is no easy task.
1: Yeah, I think again, you know, the the equation to have solved for in the last 5, 10, 15 years has basically been momentum. Yeah. And uh the, the the central banks getting away with murder um and and potentially creating their own end game has propelled the sort of the, the, the simplistic, uh, idea that stocks only go up and, and, and also, um, perhaps it's created an environment that's been uniquely, uh, um, uh, able to be dominated by quants. I don't know that to be true, but I could see how there could be a corollary there and where, where there's been no premium based on, re, um, any knowledge of history and, and, and perhaps to some degree risk management. That that, And I don't mean to imply that everyone who's a professional isn't employing, uh, a ri- isn't capable of risk management, but I think there's a huge, huge swath that employs no risk management. I mean, you certainly can't say this massive amount of money that's passively indexed has any risk management scheme whatsoever.
0: No, you're exactly right. In fact, the bizarre thing about it is that uh, in recent years and, and a lot of recent years, the less risk management you'd actually employed, the better off your returns probably are, which is terrifying if you think about it.
1: Well, I mean, yes, exactly. So, it, again, it's a corollary to what the money printing world has evolved. I mean, Mark touched on, you know, some of the societal impacts, and it, of course, drives me nuts when these Fed people try to come up and they want to they want to solve the equation for diversity and global warming and and inequality, and none of them have the self-awareness to realize they are the number one reason why we have such massive wealth disparity and all they're doing is making it worse but again there's no self-awareness whatsoever in the central any central bank in the world that near well in the western world perhaps in asia it may be different
0: yeah I, I don't know i mean that's uh you you can but hope but um i suspect probably not well look that um that wraps up another uh edition of the end game um thank you to everybody listening thanks to our guest once again mark Farber, the editor and publisher of the gloom boom and doom report and as bill says if you if you haven't listened to that you should absolutely go to um, gloomboomdoom.com which is just a, such a great website uh, gloomboomdoom.com uh, and check out mark's work because it is uh, is indispensable to, to to many in the industry Um, please do take a moment if you wouldn't mind to rate and review us on iTunes Uh, it really does help us and I I wouldn't want to put words in your mouth but uh, five stars are always better than one Um, (laughs) please uh, follow me on uh, Twitter should you wish to do so you'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H and I'm available at fleckcap.com or you could go to my website fleckensteincapital.com you can do both Bill, mate, it's always a pleasure. We've got uh, we've got our next couple of guests lined up, both of whom are going to be a lot of fun to talk to. So I can't wait to reconvene. Um, I'm with you there, mate. Thanks very much for listening.